So I just pressed um, recording. My name is Miriam Tinberg. I did CLS 2012 in Amman, Jordan, and then a Fulbright in 2014, 2015 to Rabat, Morocco. And my name is Ashley Rivenberg. I did the Critical Language Scholarship Program in 2014 in Hangzhou, China. My name is Eamon. I did CLS in Meknes, Morocco at the at Alam, or the Arab American Language Institute in Morocco. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CLS AS Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Okay, I guess we can start with the initial questions. As you know, this is a diversity and inclusion-focused podcast, so we're going to talk a little bit about CLS and about language study abroad and then kind of how it all ties into diversity and inclusion. So we've been starting by asking people to, as you did in the, the questionnaire, kind of summarize your identity in a sentence or a couple sentences. It could be with the words that we typically use to describe identities. It could be any facet of who you are, um, as a, not just like affinity groups or whatever. So however you sort of interpret that question, we'd love to know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, that's a hard question, I think, in one sentence. I don't, I like to think of my identity as multifaceted. Um, so if I were to, you know, answer it in one sentence, I would say I'm, uh, I'm a critical learner and I'm, I'm curious, critical learner. I'm always learning new things, um, but I'm constantly trying to, I think, dissect them, interrogate them, get down to the core of it and, uh, and do that in a way that's not, um, maybe being too, uh, I don't know, too, I don't want to say optimistic, but do it in a way that's honest and realistic. And, 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 and so in terms of my own identity, I think it's important to talk about whiteness. Uh, it's important to talk about privilege, and I'm sure we'll get to those topics. Kind of taking a step back again from the person that knows nothing about Arabic, nothing really about the sure. Middle East. What made you want to study Arabic and, and do CLS in Morocco? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good question, and I, you know, as a, someone who applies for scholarships, I'm sure you know that you kind of have this a question evolves as the over the course of your life, and and you keep answering it, and then it keeps growing. Um, you know, the original way it started was I became extremely interested in the Arab Spring. Uh, that started when I was in my last semester of high school, and I just kept reading and reading, and I got obsessed with it, and I read the news so much, but I wanted to go deeper. Uh, I ended up going to school in Montana, and I, I don't, I don't want to say I forgot about it, but I, I, I sort of put it on the back burner. Uh, but then I took a class uh, that was basically called the history of terrorism. And this class, it went, it didn't start with the Arab world, and it didn't just say that you know the Arab world and terrorism. It actually went back several hundred years to Napoleon's invasion of Spain, and and then when we did finally get to the Middle East and North Africa, we talked about the history of. Um, you know, Syria, Jordan, Israel, Palestine. And uh, that's when I was like, oh, here's the lens that I want to understand this region. And then the further I got into uh, studying the history of it, the more I was like, you know, I should I should get the language too. And lo and behold, there was an Arabic language uh, minor and a, and a Central and Southwest Asian Studies major in the University of Montana, which I didn't expect <laughs> at all. So I signed up right away and I haven't really looked back since. It's probably because someone like you petitioned and got it there years ago, right? I feel like that's usually how it happens. One student is interested in this random, like, obscure language, and then they create the major. Yeah. I would be curious to know. Yeah. yeah. Well, my Arabic teacher uh, in my university, my first, the first year teacher is from East Jerusalem. Uh, 
And he came to Chicago when he was 16 to, to study, to, to go to college. Uh, he graduated from high school and he didn't like it. So he moved out to Montana and he moved out to like a, a city of 10,000 people in Montana. got an engineering degree, worked for a while as an engineer and then ended up founding the Arabic program in Montana. So he's, you know, I, I know probably more than half of the Arabs in the whole state of Montana, or at least the ones that live there long term. There's not many, um, but uh, he was sort of the founder of the program. And uh, he, t- he took me under his wing, you know, in, in Arabic, you call people Ammi, that even if they're not your uncle, that word means my uncle. But it's like it's like a term of respect. And that was sort of the relationship that developed between us. So, wow. I know nothing about other parts of this country. I'm like, Montana is a place I've never been. It's like, I, I don't know say, anything about it. I know nothing the about the demographics. That's a good place to start about me. Like, it's a complicated yeah. place. Uh, most people who I meet overseas on these sorts of exchange programs have never um, never met someone from Montana. Um, but there's, uh, I would say, it's, it's a beautiful state. Uh, it's got... Two national parks. Well, Yellowstone's mostly in Wyoming, but it's partly in Montana. A lot of wilderness, uh, only a million people, uh, and it's about the size of Germany. Um, and the Montanans are very welcoming. We have a very interesting political demography. We, we People, I think, from the outside looking, would just tend to say Montana is a conservative state, but we have a history of electing uh, Democrats to statewide offices, and we have, you know, Montanans from all political persuasions come together sort of around protecting access to public land. Mike Mansfield mm-hmm. carried the Civil Rights Act. He was a senator from Montana. Um, but there's, a, you know, like any state in the Western United States, uh, especially, there's a dark side that we have. Um, wouldn't say a dark side per se, but uh, there is discrimination towards uh, Native Americans. Native Americans are the largest majority in our state. Um it's a topic that was covered in high school, but not really. Uh, and when I did sort of dig into it more on my own, it was a really disturbing um, realization that I realized that where I was living in Montana was basically, um, you could say it was parts of the state were ethnically cleansed. Like there's not, there's not a, a nice way to, to put the word. I mean, that's what a, that's what a reservation is. Now, now, I think the problem with that sort of way of talking about it is there's a way that we talk about Native Americans in this country where we act as if like they're they're gone, which isn't true. They're still around. They're just ignored. It's interesting how many times we talk about diversity and inclusion and people tick the boxes and they say maybe black, Hispanic, Latino, Asian. And so many times Native Americans are left off that list. Um, and in Montana, too, I would say there I've run into this idea that we study racism in our history textbooks. We say, oh, you know, there was racism in the South and then our country has moved past that. There's still issues. But oftentimes we don't look, take that lens and put it back on ourselves. And, and sometimes I've seen this attitude that because we don't have as much uh, other minorities, that it means that we don't necessarily have racism. And it's not true. There is there is a discrimination towards Native Americans. Um, and uh, I think. Uh, it's a that and then and I would say that about talking about my identity, that's the complex part. Like my mom's parents are from Ireland. They were poor immigrants, came to New York City. My dad's parents were partly homesteaders. So mm. uh, sort of the I mean, white, obviously, but there's two sides to that. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I just kind of rambled that's for a second. Fascinating. It's no, so interesting. The processing. 
Because we're talking about like my story for Arabic is always, you know, I started, I kind of did it in reverse. I started studying the language in high school and was instantly okay. like, whoa, this has opened up a whole world to me. I know nothing about the religions. I know nothing about the people. I know nothing about the dress or the music, whatever. Yeah. But then you, it's kind of what you're saying as you, as you discovered the history of your own, you know, home state and hometown kind of like opening up that window into it as well and learning like the good and the bad stuff. And I know we talked about this at the, um, there was a CLS alumni society conference in DC this past year. And Mm, we talked a lot about like, what is our, we did a whole diversity inclusion session. And it was like, what is our responsibility as people who are not from these places to critique these places and to be critical travelers. And this is how change and revolution and, you know, development happens as people come and go and they bring knowledge from different places and come back and then help change. You need outsiders and you need people with new information to come and sort of uproot it. But also if you're not from there, what is your responsibility? What is your capability to actually enact change and criticize? And at what point are you supposed to sit back? And then if you have an advanced language, where does that place you to? We kind of say, oh, you know, I speak Arabic really well. I have more of a say in like what happens because I understand yeah, it. But yeah. really it's like, I'm, you know, I'm from Rhode Island too, which is similar to what you're saying. I mean, there's a million people in Rhode Island, which is fascinating oh, on okay. a whole other level yeah. too, because the U.S. is nuts. But um, yeah, and so it's like, what do I, yeah, I've been in the Middle East for, you know, 15 months total, but I don't, I'm not from there. Like I don't, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing you're talking about too. And I like that you bring it back home because ultimately it isn't just about the places that we've been for these relatively short periods of time, right? It's also about what right. we do here. And, and um, yeah, that's very, that's really an interesting point that I feel that I'll be thinking about <laughs> for a while. One of the values of study abroad is oftentimes you go and then you get a different outlook on your own culture because you're not in it and you're looking on it from the outside. Um, and in terms of the, yeah, the, I basically also, I did realize I knew next to nothing about the Middle East, North Africa, Islam, Arabs, not just Arabs. I've learned that there's more than just Arabs in the Middle East, you know, um, and that was what also similar to you and it made me be like, oh, maybe I should learn about this <laughs> more. Yeah, and then you're talking about how Native Americans are the largest, like, majority in um, Montana. And I'm like, I had no idea. <laughs> and I'm from the Northeast where the, you know, half of our towns are also Native American towns, but. Right. Yeah. Think Sorry, what did you say? What per, what percentage oh, of? I was just going to say it's like around eight to nine percent of Montana. Wow. Population. That's like, yeah, that's pretty significant comparatively. Wow. You know, how do you feel issues of diversity and inclusion are addressed in Morocco, especially when compared to your experience in the States? And so you've made a really good point about, um, you know, our issues of diversity and inclusion, especially when it comes to Native Americans and how they're not even really addressed oftentimes in those discussions. And so I'm curious about your experience seeing that in another country, like how you felt issues of diversity and inclusion and maybe issues with minorities in Morocco compares to the issues that you're trying to grapple with in the States, if that makes sense. That's a, it's an interesting um, question because Morocco has these layers. And I find that the more I stay in Morocco, the, the less I realize I understand about the place. Mm. Um, I think that's good in general. That was my conclusion when traveling too. Yeah. And I just, I found that I wanted before I came to put Morocco in a box. Um, because not only do I think Americans do it, but actually a lot of people will tell you, number one, in Arabs included, I've had friends tell me that Moroccans don't really speak Arabic. They'll sell, They'll tell you it's mostly French. And then they'll tell you, even if it is, no one can understand them. And then you come here and it is an Arabic dialect, 
the roots are mostly Arabic. They're, you know, the, 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 the dialect here is around, what, 10, 11 centuries old because that's when Arabs migrated out here. So it's diverged in some ways, but it's still Arabic. Um, and then they'll tell you, or you get the opposite. Maybe you think Morocco is an Arab country and you come here and you realize half, more, maybe more than half uh, of the population is Amazigh. Uh, which are the indigenous people of Morocco. Mm. And so then uh, you have to realize that Arabic, it's difficult. I mean, it depends on could you call it a colonial language or not. It's a complicated historical mm. question. Um, it certainly looked different than European colonialism. So I think we have to be careful how we use that term. Mm. Um, so there's the layer of Arabic becoming the language of the Amazigh people, some of them. Now, some of them still speak Amazigh. And then uh, seven, eight centuries later, the French um, colonized, not, well, again, they didn't use the word colony and there weren't as many colonists, but the French had a protectorate over Morocco. So then French became the language of the Moroccan elite and it became the language of education. And so now you have functionally three languages that are still used in daily life in Morocco. And not everyone speaks all three. Some people speak all three. It's effectively four because modern standard Arabic, if you would argue, could be considered a separate or at least a distinct di you know, dialect. So when you look at Morocco, I think it's tempting to say, well, there's the French colonialism and then there's 10, 11 centuries ago, the, the Arab uh, uh, conquering of Morocco and you want, to, you want to go back to your own experiences and your own understanding of empire and colonialism and compare it to that. But you can't exactly do that um, because, it, because it's, I would say I'm still learning about it. Um, so I find that, uh, number one, Moroccan national identity is, I find it fairly inclusive. Um, you don't, yeah. it's very unique. Um, you have, I, I have Amazigh friends and I have Arab friends and they both, you know, are proudly Moroccan. Um, again, as far as I know now, have I dug deep now? Have I gone into some of these Amazigh speaking communities, uh, in Northern Morocco? No, I haven't. So again, this is me like saying, I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not the, you know, perhaps the most qualified to answer that question. Um, but, I mean, we're talking about diversity and inclusion in Morocco versus the United States. Is that And from your perspective, right, knowing that you're just, you know, ultimately an American who's gone for a relatively short period of time, from because some of what you can see in the U.S. is pretty blatant, and some of it is obviously it requires more knowledge. But from what you can see in Morocco, you spoke a little bit about this in terms of inclusion of national identity. But do you, yeah, when thinking about public spaces or education or language or whatever, do you feel we're just curious, sort of yeah. how diversity is addressed or not as compared to what you see on the day to day in the U.S.? Sure. So yeah, I think. In the U.S., like um, you could say the diversity and inclusion conversation has come to occupy this pretty big cultural space with specific terminology, um, terms like uh, microaggression, things like that weren't even in use over 10 years ago. Right. And now we have this whole vocabulary to discuss this uh, layer of experience that's always existed, but was never discussed, like in the dominant level of society. So that's. Like to me, like I'm in, I'm, I'm like into that conversation. Uh, I was into that into college mm -hmm. and it's hard for me to say 
I, I can get into that level of conversation here. I don't necessarily have the level of trust. Um, I can tell you that, you know, Morocco recently passed a constitutional reform around, I think it was six, six, seven years ago, in which the Amazigh language was included as part of the, it was made a national official language. Now you have to take a step back though and say, what is the Amazigh language? In reality, there are three, at least three distinct dialects that are uh, mostly mutually intelligible, but there's, you know, differences and there's debates over how this language should be written. They ended up picking an old alphabet that was used several thousand years ago to write it. And now all the street signs have Amazigh on the street signs and it's taught in some schools. Now, can most people read this language, even some Amazigh people included? From what I've heard, no. Um, so again, you have this nominal um, language equality, but is there the, are there the resources directed to it? Some people would say, no, there's not. Some people would say, yeah, like there should be, but at the same time, um, we have to teach people languages that they'll use in their daily and professional lives. Now, I tend to think that language is like an important core of your identity and that research shows that if you learn in your native language, you learn better. So I would I would support, um, you know, more teaching in Amazigh, but I'm, I'm just such a novice in, in discussing like the Amazigh language. I don't speak any any of it, um, that it's difficult per se for me to to say that now. And then the other question is like in a country with like Morocco, that's, um, has less resources than other countries in the world, you know, where should you devote educational resources? Mm. Um, these are all questions that, and of course the U S has problems too with educational resources. Um, but it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a fact that Morocco has on average less, uh, less wealth than the United States. I, I have so many thoughts. You took the question in a very different way than I think I would have taken it if I had been asked, because I immediately, when I think of Morocco's diversity, I actually think of the sub-Saharan African migrants that live in Morocco yes. instead of the Amazigh, you know, the like Berber indigenous people, because that's almost more obvious visually, which is when I think of diversity and inclusion, the very first thing I think of in the U.S. is black and white, basically, or brown, yeah. black, white, you know, like some combination of like a uh, outward racial identity marker. So I really appreciate that you kind of took it in a more like geographic historical mm -hmm. way. But when I, I mean, I remember when I was, when I first got to Morocco, I said something about like, so excited to be back in the Middle East. And my, the Fulbright director was like, whoa, boy, you have a lot to learn because A, it's not in the Middle East, it's North Africa, which was totally blew my mind. I had been calling it an Arab country and he was like, it is so much more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, and then there's the whole thing of like, Moroccans are technically by geography Africans, but what does that mean? And they're, you know, uh, visually might be a lot lighter skinned, especially where you are in the country, more so than like sub-Saharan Africans, for example. And then there's the whole migrant population and that's the racism within that is like, is really mm, yeah. um, a whole other thing. But yeah, so that's super interesting what you said. Um, when people asked me, you know, this question about Morocco, I tended to say that Morocco was really racially diverse, more so than in places that I had lived in the U.S. So, mm -hmm. but that is obviously an oversimplification and maybe is just an objective falsehood. Like, I'm not entirely sure. And Ashley, I'd be curious to know about China, too. Obviously, like, the scale of comparison is entirely different. Mm, but when yeah. I think of China, I think of it as, like, a pretty homogeneous country, which I know is just false. 
right? I think of it in terms of like, what do people racially look like, which is obviously really ignorant. I just don't have much to go off of. But within that, of course, there's like racial and ethnic subgroups and linguistic minorities and religious minorities. And like, um, I feel that obviously it's much more complicated in the U.S., but in a as well, but in a lot of ways, we've simplified how we discuss it too. Like we really are not talking about linguistic dialects in the U.S. at all. We're just talking about black communities, white communities, Hispanic communities. Um, so I, I appreciate what you brought up about Morocco, how it's much more complicated and how there's this history of the indigenous people, kind of how you brought up Native Americans in Montana. I do think that there are um, parallels to be drawn between that actually. But yeah, so I think that's, I don't know, Ashley, if you have anything to add about China as well, yeah. just like your, your reaction upon getting there initially. Yeah. And even just kind of taking it a step back and looking at like the idea of glo- like the idea of diversity and inclusion, your perspective on it really does kind of depend where you're from and the history of that place. So like yeah. the United States, we do think of it in racial terms because of the history of slavery. You know, in China, it's more about geographic terms and where you are, like different cities or things like that. In, in India, it's maybe based more on the caste system. So I'm just mm. I, I'm. I feel like I came into this very unprepared. I feel like I should have done a lot more research on like the Middle East and all of this. So I'm trying to soak it because I'm going to be honest with you. You guys talk about the term Arabs and I can't even in my mind like is not a nationality, but it's a racial group, but it's also a language. So it's I'm just over here processing everything. That's a great point. I didn't know before. I don't know about you, Eamon, but like every Middle East class I took in college, she was like, we're going to start by defining Arab. We're going to start by defining what countries are in the Middle East because it's so, it's such a confusing thing. So Eamon, I don't know if you want to speak to it, but the definition that I have learned about Arab is someone who speaks Arabic. It's just based on a linguistic definition. And that's what I operated on for a while. And then I had a Syrian Druze friend tell me like, Stop calling it the Arab world. There are non-Arabs in the in that in that region, even though he's an Arabic speaker. And I said, I pushed back a bit. He likes debating. You know, he wasn't like offended if I pushed back. And and uh, I think it's complicated. And and in Morocco, you have a situation where it was it was not like a majority of Arabs moved here and then usurped control. It was it was a minority the whole time, maybe 10 percent of the population controlled the country and then other groups, tribes became Arabized and began speaking Arabic and others didn't. Um, and even actually I would, I should, I should say I was remiss not to mention the sub-Saharan migrants in Morocco. There is, there is a lot of uh, racism towards them and they are uh, treated poorly in some Moroccan cities. There aren't um, a lot in Meknes, um, but ones that do, uh, they tend to, they go to a church, um, which I've been meaning to attend. Um, so, but then at the same time, right, there's a, uh, there's a community of called the Ganawa who were basically, uh, used to be slaves in Morocco several hundred years ago, and then they were freed. And now they've become part of the Moroccan national identity and they're celebrated. They have this special style of music. Um, and there's a, there's a big festival. And so, they have the same skin tone as the um, sub-Saharan Af- African migrants, but they're definitely considered Moroccan. So now you have to bring in, you know, immigration. Um, what does what is race, right? I think that race we've been taught in the United States is this specific set of constructs, but as we talk about race, it's socially constructed, and so in each country, in some ways, it's constructed differently. It's not that race doesn't exist here, but it exists in a different way. 
Um, which again, I can't necessarily speak to specifically, but just those are my initial impressions. To one of the questions that we had on, um, that I was very curious to ask, um, with all of this in mind where you're like, I'm in the midst of like a, a context that I don't really understand. I'm going to step back. You are, you know, you self-identify as a white straight man, right? Cis white straight man. Is that correct? Yeah. And so that obviously, I mean, I am a cis white straight woman. So these are like continually things that I was confronting um, and sort of battling with, especially on a state department funded thing where the point is to go and and teach your own language. And that's a whole other, like, is this imperialist? Like what's happening? Um, I'm curious yeah. sort of how you were, how you were and are uh, dealing with that because you can beat yourself down with that. You also like have to commend yourself as I hope that we all do for being yeah. in the minority of people that go abroad and study these languages and put ourselves out there. But you do have to sort of deal with those two realities at the same time. So I'm curious with, if is this something you think on the day to day? Are you confronted with it regularly? Does it just come up in these types of like racial, religious, ethnic discussions or how does that manifest in your, in your life out there? Yeah. I mean, sort of my, my privilege as a white American in a place like Morocco, is that, I mean, a way of kind of tackling that question? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so in, in terms of stepping back, how do I do that? But also being in a leadership role, like as an RD, as I was, and as I am now, how do I do that? Um, how do I, you know, help guide students through this culture as I'm still learning about it? Um, those are all difficult questions and, uh, questions that, yes, you have to constantly be asking yourself, like you've never, you've never arrived, so to speak. Uh, you know, it's, if you, ha if you could, then there would be, you're not doing it right. Anyways. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of ways I could, I could answer that question. I think one is that from the beginning as an RD, I try to acknowledge that people are going to be treated differently here. Um, not only does everyone come from a different background, but that people are going to be treated differently here based on how they look um, and based on how they talk. Now, for me, any time I speak like two words of Arabic, people are like, wow, you're so amazing. <laughs> like, you are. I love Americans. You're so smart. Do they say you're more fluent than me? <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, that I, I get that. And, and sometimes I've said like two words, you know, and it's, it's partly it's being a white American, partly it's being a male. Um, so it's, it's easy. I mean, I can't lie. I, that it helps me. I speak a lot of Arabic because people encourage me to. Now, on the other hand, other students have different situations, heritage speakers sometimes, are expected to speak the language fluently when they haven't had the experience necessary. And so they get extreme language anxiety, you know, because of, again, the way they look. Um, women in a place like Meknes basically have to be much more careful about where and when they go. And because a lot of social places in a place like Morocco are gender segregated, it's harder, it's harder to find a random conversation partner. Now I live, I have a roommate here and I uh, lived alone over the summer, but I was still able to find friends. But as a woman, that would frankly be harder. And because, so layers of my identity have also made 
giving me the ability to learn Arabic, um, giving me some opportunities that are basically closed off to certain people. Um, now, I, the question is, right, I, I mean, I did like what you said about how, like, you can't constantly beat yourself down. I mean, I think you, if you are, I, I remember when I was back in Montana, I was, I was going to, you know, activist meetings after the election, and, and I had a conversation with an older, um, a middle-aged woman who was in the same group. It was like me and another few people my age and like all moms. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Experience of activism after the election in 2016. It was like mostly moms, which was amazing. Um, And uh, she just told me, you know, like you feel the white guilt, but at some point you have to ask like, is this serving, is this serving the cause? So if your white guilt like prevents you from getting out of bed, prevents you from or prevents you from having that difficult conversation because you're afraid to make a mistake, then it's not serving you. And so as much as like maybe the white guilt, you know, you feel like guilty for the past history of racism and whiteness in America. I mean, I, I think that's a step, but it, it's, it's not, it's not the stopping point. You have to move past that and you have to like find ways to build life giving communities that that work to dismantle that so to take it back to cls though um i would remind students that you know we're all in this together people are going to be treated differently we need to support each other and what that ended up doing in the first week or two is a student of color stepped forward and offered to lead a an activity uh about cultural competency and she what she did was she had people write their names um, in, uh, sorry, they didn't write their names. They each took a piece of paper and they wrote down in time they'd experienced harassment, racism, discrimination because of their identity. And then she took all the pieces of paper and she redistributed them, no names on them. And people went around in a circle and read them. And now it was new. I don't think anyone should do this. Um, it was, it can be vulnerable, but if, if you feel that it's the right situation, what it did was it real, it, number one, it showed people how their identity affected their experience here, but it also showed things underneath the surface that you wouldn't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. Uh, poverty, uh, a lot of, you know, the, a lot of the comments were about um, sexism and sexual harassment. Um, and so I always tried to open myself up to the students in a responsible way uh, to get their feedback and, um, that was how that was my way, I think, of dealing with my privilege was to constantly open myself up to learning from the students um, and to say, hey, I'm here to learn, too. I'm not I'm not here to like tell you I know everything about this place. Um, I'm here to keep you safe. Um, but at the same time, um, we're in this together. So were you explicit um, at the beginning that, hey, I'm a white straight guy, like I'm going to have an easier experience? Was that something that you said kind of point blank? Yeah, I said I said more or less uh, something along those lines, and specifically when I addressed uh, sexual harassment. Yeah. I said, "Look, men in the room, you're going to be you're going to have an easier time this summer, and we need to all support each other because of that." And I would, when I talked about sexual harassment, I would I would usually sort of preface it by saying, "Look, I don't know what it's like to be sexually harassed. Um, I, in fact," would sometimes give time in the meetings 
for the women in the group just to talk to each other. And obviously they were doing this already. Like I obviously didn't have to tell them to do that, but I tried to facilitate it as much as possible um, and connect them with other people that could help them taking a step back. It is such a tricky thing. It's kind of, I don't want to say lose-lose, but it definitely is an interesting position that you are in because we're obviously not here to be like, no white men should lead programs like this. That's not allowed. Like, that's not a thing either. But we are also in a political climate where you really have to, like... like kind of defend why you are there and and that is really hard for I mean I feel that that would be difficult for because you're obviously super qualified to lead this program and you should but um all I know is that when I you know I've done a couple I don't know about you guys did a couple state department um like security briefings over the years for CLS and then for regular study abroad and then Fulbright. And there was always a white straight man kind of talking about dress will affect how your experience is. Like they tried over the years, they got better at it, but even still we were like, guys, come on. And then when I went to Morocco, within the first week, there was a panel of past Fulbrighters who were still in Morocco. And it was um, like four women and one man, which is usually the breakdown of these programs. It's like majority women anyway. And um, the, the women were, one woman was bigger, you know, bigger chest, bigger hips. And she was just kind of like, guys, don't trust the police. Like I got harassed by the police, pushed against the wall. Like if you look Moroccan, you will have an easier experience. If you are a man, you will have an easier experience. If you are white, you will. And I had never heard such like blatant truths before. And it was really painful and really scary as someone who was new to the the country. And But I found that it opened up the the pathway to validation so that the rest of the year, everyone was like, Miriam, you look Moroccan. Like Mike's like, we were able to talk about it more honestly. There was one man out of 10 on our, on our ETA program. And he was like, tell me about like, guys, tell me about it. Cause I just, I won't ever experience it. He was placed in Wazirzat. It's like the most out, you know, the most out there compared to all the cities because he had to, he had no choice. I really appreciated that they were so explicit in the panel because I'd never gotten that. And I don't know if you either, I don't even know what security kind of briefings you would get for China, but I've never had like a super productive, successful one that that actually was meaningful except for that. So I just, I mean, it sounds like you're really hyper aware in a way that these older State Department officials might not have been. And I think that's probably the, the nature of the times changing since 2012 when I first went. And also you're younger, more relatable. You grew up in the Arab springtime and you grew up in the, you know, Me Too and Trump getting elected. So we're just more, I think, privy to this, to how to have these conversations. But mm-hmm. even still, I imagine it's like an incredible burden that you have to to deal with to, to walk the line of sensitivity, which is near impossible. Um, so yeah, I just I mean, honestly, I'm like, yeah. I'm sure you're doing what you can. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not... I mean, I'm still like, it's an amazing, it's an amazing job and I loved it. And it was a challenge that I was, I was willing to do. I think, I do think, um, it's obviously like diversity and inclusion matters and it's becoming something that's not negotiable, right? Like we have to have diversity in our programs. Our programs have to be representative of what the United States looks like, um, I still think at some point we do have to come back and say that ideas matter too. Like we have to say that there's more to you than just the color of your skin, but it's complicated because the color of your skin has affected how you're treated and the course of your life. And I don't know where the, I don't know if there is a sweet spot, you know, like a way to say we want everyone to be conversant in this. Um, but we don't want everyone to just be treating people, so to speak differently based on the color of their skin. But we have to be aware that people are, treated differently based on the color of their skin. I think, and I, I, some of the back, some of the backlash to this 
I think some of the backlash to this diversity and inclusion narrative is coming because we've, we've had some success. Like we've successfully <laughs> taken cultural space and said, no, like, get out of here. You can't be a racist anymore, you know? And they're saying they're mad that there's like cultural power on the side of, on, of this conversation for the first time. Um, anyways, <laughs> I'm going to listen. That you bring that up, because that's something that I've been struggling with a lot lately, is this idea of diversity of thought. And I don't want to get off on a tangent mm. too much, but this idea that diversity of thought should be introduced into the narrative. And you're right, there is different elements of diversity. It's not just about race. You know, it's your sexual orientation, your gender, maybe the, the environment you grew up in, and the different ways that you do think. But you, this balance of Diverse, I mean, we all have diversity of thought, so you don't want to push to the side the important work that diversity and inclusion is and of including people that have been excluded from the narrative, but how do you include that other aspect into there? So I do agree that finding the sweet spot is very tricky. So I'm kind of curious um, what you said, you know, because what you were saying before, we are more than, we are part and part and parcel of our identities are our physical attributes and they do affect basically everything in our lives, but we are also more than that. Um, and so I'm curious kind of to the Montana discussion that we were having before. Okay. You're obviously, you know, you're white, you're straight, you're cis, all of these things that are maybe obvious to people that visually you can see, but I'm curious what were there aspects of your identity, maybe being from Montana, maybe, um, mm. you know, other things that you did that, that, came out that have come out in your time in Morocco in ways that surprise you, like um, when studying the language or when dealing with the, with students or whatever that you kind of were surprised um, mm. emerged? Yeah, I think um, being in a program like CLS, uh, I was, you know, I was probably one of the better Arabic students in my program back in Montana, but in CLS, I was not. And I had come in with three, three years of college Arabic, and then I came to CLS, and I felt like I knew nothing. Yeah. And uh, I tend to talk a lot, but I also, you know, took the language pledge. So I, I basically wasn't able to express myself uh, as well as I'd like to, and or even understand what was going on some a lot of the time. So I had to learn to listen a lot better, um, and. I think that that's a part of my personality that developed. Um, and I think that's I like, a, I like to think of that as a skill that you can develop instead of something that you're born with versus not, <laughs> because when we get into it, and, and it even comes with languages. Some people will tell you like, Oh, I just don't have that skill. I can't learn a language. And I push back on that maybe just because I think more people should learn languages. But, um, and then as an RD, um, <clears throat> I think uh, I tend to have a million different things going on, and uh, I was concerned that maybe I would let some of the de some of the details. Uh, I think I, I would get overwhelmed by dealing with so many students, and not that you know their problems are huge and complex, but just that the, the sheer volume of it. Um, but I was happy that I felt like I was able to stay organized enough, and okay. and to be able to communicate in Arabic in a way that was efficient and led the group. And I would say that being an RD challenged my Arabic skills as well, because I went from take, having taken the language pledge in 2015 and participating to taking the language pledge in 2019 and having to lead the group um, and having to, and I personally, I didn't, I, in between Morocco 
2015 and 2019, I spent some time in the Jerusalem area for a year teaching English. Uh, so I actually speak oh, Palestinian oh. Arabic better than I speak Darija. So now my Darija is getting okay, but I mostly spoke standard Arabic all summer because I wasn't really coming in with a strong Darija base. Um, which, as you know, CLS, uh, as CLS Arabic tends to focus more on standard Arabic and that's a whole yeah, a lot of thoughts, yes. Actually, <laughs> right, I feel like we're just going into the weeds. But isn't, so that when you talk, because I'm, I'm trying to base this on the, what I know, which is Chinese and how, you know, you have Putonghua, which is like the standard that everyone speaks, but everyone has their own individual dialect. So you could have someone from a region that speaks Putonghua, which is the standard, but maybe not well. So, but you had mentioned kind of standard Arabic being more almost, I don't want to say Shakespearean, but like no one actually speaks standard Arabic or is that, am I understanding that correctly? Now we have to go into like spoken. We have to like, we have to like break down the terms in this sentence. Mm. Standard Arabic is not spoken for the most part as okay. a language of daily communication. Which so, so you can't make a direct parallel to that Chinese standard gotcha. language. No one speaks it. Yeah, really. Ah. They speak it on television programs, speak it on the radio. They might speak it in like a class in a university. They speak it in CLS Arabic. Eighty <laughs> <laughs> percent of the time. <laughs> um, and I actually do still carry on relationships in standard Arabic here. Um, but that's basically because I am still working on my Darija. So it's more like, I, well, I think there's parallels to Chinese. It's kind of like how Latin uh, basically stopped being spoken but continued as a language of exchange for several hundred years. Uh, meanwhile, French, Italian, other Romance languages were diverging. Um, so it's as if like we all kept learning Latin and then we still would speak all the European countries and the United States maybe would speak like Latin when they communicated with each other in a formal academic way. You're having to learn multiple languages then when you're over there. Like what you speak in the classroom is not necessarily what you're going to be speaking out yeah. in the market. Yeah. Like in markedly differently. So like you will go, I, I studied two years of Arabic before I went to Jordan and I was like, oh, I studied two years of Arabic. Then you get into a taxi and you use the words that you know, like I want to go to whatever. And they'll laugh at you. It's not Arabic, like it's not Arabic that is spoken. So you have to start from square one. It gives you a grammatical foundation, but there's no, well, I would argue there is grammar and dialects, but it's not so standardized. So you really, it's so, it's so frustrating and disheartening. And as a student, like, I think even diversity and inclusion issues aside, like ensuring that students maintain a positive and like an optimistic mm -hmm. outlook on this, I'm sure is really hard because it can really beat you down. And that's so fascinating, really just to wrap your brain around it. Cause it's, I don't know. Cause you think about China and you have Chinese and the history and it's with one country, China that has this history. So it's a lot more easy to box in where I'm still, I, I, a couple months ago, listened to a podcast on like, what is the Middle East? Hoping, like you mm -hmm. said, to find answers. And I got zero answers. It was like, well, some people believe this and some people believe that and this and this. And I, so to me, it's just fascinating because it's so difficult to categorize and, and box in my brain, which is, I guess, perhaps how my brain works. 
Um, I think that's human nature, right? Is to try to box and, and put categories on. That's what we're dealing with now. Like gender is a spectrum. Sexuality is a spectrum. Right. We can't put things into exactly. boxes. And it's, we're all struggling with this. Even those of us that identify as progressive, liberal, right. be who you are, love who you want, whatever. It's still like you're fighting against these natural exactly. impulses, I think. Which yeah. is human nature, right? It's the whole, that's how our brains work is when so much information comes in, you have to be able to easily filter and categorize it. So that's, so answer one more question for me, the, the person that doesn't know anything about any of this is, is, I know Arabic is a language. Is it associated with an ethnic racial component as well? Like it can someone be identify as Arabic. Like I am Arabic or no, not Arabic. Like I'm an Arab, no, but like you said, it's not because you speak the language. Is there a, an extra component, like an ethnic racial component as well? Mm. A lot of countries would say we're an Arab republic, like Syria says they're an Arab republic and that the Kurds are included in that Arab republic. But then some of the Kurds say we're not Arab and and that's a whole other issue. But that's, an, you know, another example. And we're all sitting here again, white cisgender people trying to debate this. I feel like you need to like pick <laughs> your computer up and go out on the street and be like, sir. <laughs> This girl's asking this question. What's your opinion? You know? Yeah. Which is why I have no interest in really like studying classical Arabic anymore. And I know a lot of people do a lot more academically minded people, for example, are really interested in taking it up to high levels. And I don't know if this exists in Chinese at all that you can study like a more street language versus a more mm. traditional. And depending on the academic route or professional route you're going to go, you might choose one over the other. I think in Middle East, circles in American Middle East circles, there are distinctive paths. Those that go and study like Islamic scholars for at a PhD level. Yeah. And then those that do like um, the internet in the Arab spring and they want to know like the street language and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely am in that latter camp. I'm much more interested in like the conversations that are happening in households and stuff and um, amongst mm -hmm. youth and whatever. But you do, it is an active decision that you have to make. Like what part of society do you want to engage with? I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because you only have so much time to like. <laughs> ideally, you could do both, but it it gets difficult. Okay, so we'll then just do a little wrap up, kind of post CLS. Just thinking about diversity and inclusion. Um, curious about the ways. I don't know if we touched on the privilege aspect, but did doing CLS as a student and then sort of helping to run CLS this summer change the way you think of diversity and inclusion? Maybe in watching students go through some particular challenges or whatever, have you changed? Has it changed your, your mentality at all? Um, I think that, I think, yes, for, I think white, for white people, sometimes there's like a fear of stepping into these conversations and there's a fear of basically saying something wrong. And why that is, is a whole other conversation. I have some ideas, but we'll save that for another time. Um, but the point is that uh, I think you have to overcome that fear. And for the most part, people are willing to call you in, like people are willing to help you grow in that. And if you open yourself up to that growth, it'll happen. And so in terms of not just CLS, but other study abroad experiences I've had, I've, I've wanted more of this critical reflection and, and space for processing diversity and inclusion. And so I was glad when this certain student stepped up in the first week to do that workshop. Um, and I would hope that um, CLS could do more uh, activities like that um, 
And I understand that they are doing some uh, work with alumni now to sort of process their experience. Um, the challenge is that uh, CLS is, as you know, it's intensive. And so it's difficult to ask students to find more time in the week to do this sort of slow down and process what you're thinking uh, activity when they have so much on their mind. Um, but I, I feel like there's got to be a way to incorporate that into CLS um, in a way that's that's more, more programs are doing it more regularly um, in the PDO, halfway through the program, talking about critically breaking down identity um, and talking about diversity and why is CLS an important program? I mean, it is all it is in sense all about diversity. I mean. You can, it's not even, I mean, it's not even coming down from the top, so to speak. It's, it's literally, we need to go out and learn more languages and learn more about the world in order to, for the United States to, to, I don't know, to be able to better solve problems. So on the individual level, I think that this work takes, uh, from my perspective, like white people being willing to take risks, uh, putting them, making themselves a little uncomfortable sometimes. And um, opening up that space for critical reflection and opening yourself up to that. Um, and I think in response, what you'll usually find is there's a community there waiting for you, willing to help you grow. Um, but you have to sometimes let yourself fall down a little bit, but they'll catch you. The final sort of you sort of touched upon this, but I don't know if there's any specific succinct pieces of advice that you might give to students. Um Mm. pre-CLS, sort of just thinking about how they can best engage with these issues of identity, culture, diversity as they travel abroad, like things that maybe you wish you knew um, before you went that someone had told you. Like, for example, what we were discussing before, if you look more like the, the majority people, you will have an easier time. Or even like, so pieces of advice like that, or just how to deal with these issues as they arise, as they inevitably will in the summer, yeah. if there's anything you can think of. I think um, the alumni uh, uh, the alumni directory is actually pretty extensive, um, and I can't speak for all the alumni in there, but there's a lot of different alumni from diverse backgrounds, and so if you have questions about what it's going to be like to be in that country, I can't guarantee you're going to find your answer there, but there's a good chance. So I would say look through the alumni uh, resource directory. Um, I also think uh, as, you know, someone, as, you know, people of color have every right to, to wonder how, how it's going to be an experience and to ask those questions. And so don't be afraid to ask your program officer or your RD or other people, like if you have concerns about, um, you know, what you might experience there uh, and if you will be, if you will experience racism or discrimination that, and that I hope that RDs and program officers are very upfront about that. I don't think you should hide that reality from students. And I tried as much as possible to, to not sugarcoat that for any of the mm. students. Um, and then I think the last piece would be, I think it goes without saying that open yourself up to the host culture. Um, but I think what CLS does do really well, at least in my year, and is I think that they do, do put a lot of thought into selecting cohorts that bring a lot of different um, types of diversity, um, racial, uh, socioeconomic, geographic diversity. And so 
lean into your cohort and realize that the identities of the people in your cohort can also help you navigate the country you're in. Um, and then if you can create that like team effort, that team spirit in your cohort, it can go a long way towards making the whole summer a lot better for everyone. And, and a language itself is really only useful if you have a community of people to speak it with. So use the same philosophy for CLS and build a community of your cohort and don't reproduce the dynamics of elite colleges in the U.S. where everyone's cutthroat competing against each other academically. Once you've made it into CLS, throw that all out the window and and just support each other. So. <laughs> This is really good. Yeah. And I like that you direct people to internal resources. It almost makes it easier um, because to your greater point, we don't have people don't have that much time. Everyone's really academically um, stressed. And so I feel like do the directory. It's already in your email. Talk to the cohort. You're already there. That kind of is in some ways easier homework to to do and um, and resources to find. So, yeah, this was Eamon. This is a really great conversation. I'm glad, Ashley, that you also found it. Yeah, I mean, I love to go to discuss this stuff. I think, to your earlier point, the conclusion ultimately is the more you know, the less you know, kind of. And I feel that that was my experience after, you know, my time in Morocco and on CLS in Jordan, too. So I feel that that's a good conclusion to reach. So um, I really appreciate you you talking about this stuff with us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm happy. Thank you for the conversation. I, I found it fascinating as well. And uh, thanks for creating this podcast. I think it's really cool. I've never been on a podcast before. So. Thanks so much, everybody, for listening to our podcast today. We want to give a special shout out and thanks to CLSAS and CLS Ambassadors for supporting this programming. And if you guys want to learn more about CLS or CLSAS or be on future episodes of the podcast, go to CLSAS.org and then the media tab. And thank you listeners and participants of the pod for being open-minded and willing to jump into these tough but important conversations. And we would like to give Ben Sound credit for the amazing music clips. It's important to mention that after Eamon listened back, he had a couple of corrections. He said majorities instead of minorities when talking about Montana's Native Americans. He said his dad's parents were homesteaders instead of his ancestors were settlers. And then he said that Arabs came 10 to 11 centuries ago when they actually came in the 7th century and that the French colonized Morocco 7 to 8 centuries later when he meant the 19th and 20th centuries with a protectorate formally coming in 1912 and ending in 1956. 